and welcome to Model View Conversation, America's premier tech education podcast. I'm Ryan Bates. And I'm Ben Golke. And we are here today to talk about becoming a software developer, which, to be fair, we talk about basically every time. Uh, so let's move on to the next, um, the next kind of idea, which is, uh, do you, this is going to be less about the technology itself and more about maybe the environment in which you like to work. Which is important. Uh, yeah, it's very important. Um, so do you like to work on a big team? Are you, are you a fan of sort of team, the, the, you know, team sports in the sense that you, <laughs> you have a goal, not in actual sports terms, but just in the, in the sense that you have a goal, it's a shared goal among a large collection of people, and you're all working towards that same goal together? Um, or are you the kind of person that likes to maybe work on a very small team where you have this kind of more, you know, are you uh, are you the NFL or are you the A team, right? Do, do you like to be part of a, a large group that everyone is everyone has maybe um, a, a a niche role or or a, a part to play in it, or are you more? Uh, I want to have a smaller, more surgical team that that um, either knows their roles really well or maybe is even more kind of. Uh, sometimes those small teams are, are very, very focused on a particular aspect each person is, uh, or maybe some other times they're more of a jack of all trades where it's like, there's four of us and we can do together, we can do anything. Um, and, and you kind of, uh, you, you build it that way. Um, or even do you like to work by yourself? Uh, I would say that, that programming is a team sport. Increasingly so. Yeah. Ultimately, right. The success of a, of a piece of software is, is based on a, a growing number of people, um, within an organization or a group, but it is certainly the case that you can you can carve out a career for yourself that is that is more solitary. I'm not going to say completely solitary, but but is more solitary. Uh, what's your what's your preference, Brian? Personally, I prefer small teams, but probably not complete isolation because I think you get more intellectual stimulation if you're around other people. Yeah, I, I think I'm probably the same. Uh, small teams are really where where I tend to tend to thrive. I've worked on very large teams, and it's it's fine. Maybe we can quantify that a little bit. What counts as very large? Uh, so I'm going to say any team bigger than, let's say, like a dozen. Okay. To me, and when I say we're very large is perhaps not the right way to describe that. Uh, large, I guess, is <laughs> without the very qualifier. Um, I mean, more than a dozen people, that's... To me, that feels big, but, but again, maybe that's partly because I have mostly worked on small teams, so so the difference there seems grander than if if you're used to working on a team of a hundred people, twelve seems tiny by comparison. Um, but to me, and is when you say working on a team, is that uh, everybody who is responsible for a particular product or or piece of software, or is it can you have multiple teams collaborating to some extent on one of those? So certainly you can have multiple teams. And when I say when I say maybe more than a dozen, I, I am including designers. I am including uh, you know, configuration people who help with the build. I'm consider I'm I'm thinking of uh, maybe if you know if your team's big enough, you'll have someone that manages your Git repository, right? That's their job is to make sure that it's uh, at least in the one industry that I worked, it was called configuration management, where basically uh, the way in which the software, the, the artifacts of the software were stored and maintained and managed. That was a job, um, and and I think sounds more like a punishment, frankly. <laughs> yeah, well, depend. I guess depending on your, your perspective, it, it might be, um, especially considering that at that time that person was using ClearCase. I don't even I don't know what that is at all. It's a it's an enterprise uh, source control management system that is awful. Oh. Um, so <laughs> so I believe probably was a punishment. Okay, um, but 
<laughs> but uh, to me, it would be anyway. Um, but I'm including people like that who are in a sort of a support role in the sense that they don't write the software that goes into the product, but they still are. I'm going to count them as part of the technical team. So I, that doesn't include people like like stakeholder managers that are in a whole different department. Yeah, we can talk about all those folks next time. But you're saying uh, a group of about 12 people who all together in working on different aspects of the project are the only people with technical responsibility for the product. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and that includes people like designers, because even though they're not writing code, they're designing the interfaces that are going to be used in the product, right? Basically, if you have a direct impact on the on the quality and uh, makeup of the product itself, I consider you part of sort of the core team, right? Okay. There's, in, in Scrum, if you if you've researched Scrum at all as a mm -hmm. as a as a process management system, there's this analogy that they use, which is you know perhaps a little uh, off color, but they 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 call they group everyone into two groups. There's pigs and chickens, and it's just an analogy that is designed to help facilitate uh, an understanding of how much is at stake for each person. So a the idea is that the pig and the chicken oh, are going right. to make make breakfast food together. together. Right, make breakfast together, and in the case of the chicken, they're going to lay eggs, and then they're going to cook those eggs. Whereas the chick, the pig, is going to contribute its own flesh, right? right? The bacon, basically. So when when you when it comes down to describing people on a technical team, the pigs are the people that have a direct responsibility and accountability to the product that is produced. Whereas the chickens are all the people involved that do not have that are do not have a direct accountability mm -hmm. to the product. Okay. Um, and it's you know again, it's maybe. Maybe you can think of a better analogy, but but the idea there is is not to call someone a pig or a chicken. The idea is to call it's just to create two categories of people, one which has more more to lose, I guess is is the way right. you can describe that, right? Um, by being involved in this project. So I'm talking about all the all in this analogy, I'm talking about all the pigs, all the people that have a direct accountability to the success right. or failure right. of the product. Uh, out, out of the pigs and the chickens, which ones are on the submarine again? <laughs> I mean, I guess it would be the pigs, right? Because oh boy, I, I, I would not know. want to be down there. Either and way, then, you're gonna have and issues. And then the chickens are like running the the the, the communication tower on the land. I, right. I don't know. This is this is yeah, breaking down very quickly. Yeah. We should move on. Right. <laughs> That's interesting that you would um, quantify the teams that way, because in that case, I guess I'm comfortable in those terms working on larger teams because I'm now at a company of a uh, hundred-ish, and the certainly the majority of those are developers. And um, we're structured in a way, actually just sort of restructured in a way that feels smaller and like there's more communication. We have different um, feature teams. And so you have a couple of front end people and a couple of UI UX people and a couple of back end people. And that's sort of your little universe working on a particular feature for a release. And that feels small to me, even though there are a lot of different feature teams all uh, collaborating not really working together on a particular screen of the application, but all working on the same application. And I think that's something else that, that we could uh, maybe just touch on briefly. Like there are cases where you will walk into a, a company's office and you will see a giant floor of cubicles and it's like a, a, a farm, right. a sea of people. Right. As who far are, as let's I... say it's, it's 40 Java, uh, Java uh, programmers all in one area and they all work on the same application and it's just one giant team of 40 people. Other places where there are two Ruby developers doing the exact same amount of work. Oh, I'm sorry. That was, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. That's an old rivalry. 
Um, and then there's other cases where maybe the company is large, but they break it up like you've described at your company. Um, and I feel like I wouldn't want to be part of that first group that, right. that where it's a, just it's a, a server or a cube farm full of people um, all doing exactly the same thing. Um, but I do feel like – so I like working on a small team. So whether that's literally a small team at a small company and that's we do everything or it's a small team that is part of a larger collection of teams at a larger company, I think that's totally fine. I, I, I Really what I, what I think I – where I thrive is when I'm talking about day-to-day work, I would like for the team of people that I work with day-to-day to be relatively small, so like 10 or less. Um but that team can be part of an organization that is larger where maybe, you know, like at the company I worked at before I worked at Lambda School, um, uh, each version of the application that we built, like we built an iOS version, an Android version, a Windows version. Um, we had teams, of course, that did the programming for those things. So like we all worked on the same product, but I worked on the team that built the iOS version of that product and that team was small. And then the Windows team was a small team and then the Android team was a small team. So like collectively we're, you know, let's say 20, 20, 30 people, but I, my team was only like four or five, right? So, so day to day, I interface with these, uh, these couple people and then sort of uh, less often, I would talk to the Android people and the Windows people to, to understand their strategy and make sure that we were kind of all basically in alignment and stuff like that. I mean, that's totally fine. Uh, but day to day, I, I thrive in a smaller environment. So I guess I'm going to, I'm going to amend my previous statement by saying that's really what I like. And and there's various ways you can get there, right? You can it can be truly small, or it can be small within the context of a larger thing. And do you think there are ways that your choice of technology impact uh, what size organization you're probably going to end up working with? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's uh, I I think yes. So certainly there are places where there are Java developers or .NET developers or JavaScript developers, you know, people who build uh, front end web stuff, um, where those teams are small and they're part of a large organization or whatever. And there's places where it's a giant cube farm of people that all do exactly the same thing that that use those technologies. So in some cases, I feel like um, the the technology you pick can impact the kind of environment you're generally going to tend to see. I feel like if you choose, again, I'm going to speak from a position of relative ignorance. I don't have years and years of experience at these things. But my observation has been if you pick like .NET as an example... Um, the 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 sort of stable of technologies that that Microsoft has built to make uh, Windows and Windows adjacent focused products, um, they those are used that technology is used a lot in enterprise, and I use the term enterprise to mean very 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 large companies, right? Banks and insurance companies and that sort of yeah, thousands, tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of employees, um, very very large companies. Uh, so enterprise is kind of the word that we all use to describe a company like that. And in those cases, um, they tend to be a whole floor of people that all do one kind of thing, right? That's like a whole floor full of .NET developers. Um, there are certainly lots of opportunities for you to use the technology in other environments, but that sort of that tends to be the trend there. So, yeah. so I think whereas like Ruby on Rails is, I think a more if you were to if you were to give a language a personality, I feel like Ruby on Rails has more of like the scrappy upstart kind of personality, mm-hmm. and so that tends to then be used by scrappy upstarts. So things like startups that that uh, want to build this massive thing quickly and, and efficiently. Um, and so they pick Ruby on Rails to do that. Um, and, and that's a small team. It's, like you said, a couple people that are that are building that. So these are these are um, 
they're kind of like trying to pick a profession or a group of people, a culture of people, and trying to describe who like what they do. And it's like, well, some of them do this and some of them don't. So I'm I'm I want to caveat all that by saying, right, that we're stereotyping, but we're we're stereotyping based on experience of what organizations that use these different technologies tend to be like. Right. So I think as long as we use words like this tends to be true in 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 multiple occasions and stuff, um, I think that's fine. But but know that that you can certainly find examples, counterexamples to all of these things. And I, I think we've also skipped over the idea of what these different technologies that we've just mentioned, like uh, .NET and Java and Ruby, where they fit. And I think that would be what we call server-side or back-end programming, which is not a term that we've really uh, defined for this episode. Yeah, server-side programming or back-end programming, I think, is going to be a, a genre of programming that is mostly focused on what I described as like an a sort of having an algorithmic mindset. So rather than being focused on on the interaction of the human and the computer, that would be the user interface, the back-end is more focused on storing data, retrieving data, uh, you know, building answers to questions with that data, and then conveying that information more than likely to another computer. So rather than to a human, it's conveying the information that it collects to another computer through the use of like an API or something. Yeah, so typically this is something that both communicates with the database, where maybe it's another developer who's in charge of stuff like SQL, or maybe the backend person is in charge of SQL themselves, and then sends that information to the computer that has the uh, iPhone, well, that is the iPhone that has the app running on it, or to the computer that has the browser with the web page in it. Right. So things like Ruby on Rails, uh, and and then I'm just going to put an asterisk that says all the other choices. All the, is, yeah, which there's is, so many other yeah, choices. Java and Python and Scala and Perl and PHP and Go and, Go and Rust and you, know, you can just there are a and lot JavaScript. of JavaScript and JavaScript. You can work on the server. So the, there, are, there are a lot of different language choices uh, which will appeal to different people for pretty idiosyncratic reasons but um, they all kind of serve similar functions. Yeah, so I think maybe the next thing we could talk about around that is uh, whether kind of language choice, right? Whether you like to work um, on things that are that have like a well-established best practice or you're more of a Wild West kind of person where you like to sort of make things up on the fly and, uh, and kind of uh, blaze your own trail. So we, we wrote into the notes uh, in that long established best practice section, things like Java, like .NET, um, because they have a, a long history. They've, they've kind of settled on a certain way of doing things that are the best practice for that language. And because they're used in these giant organizations, which are not fans of change, you know, you're, you're not going to convince the IT manager of a bank that's worth trillions of dollars that they ought to just scrap all of their software and start over every six or 18 months. Right, or that they should they should dump this platform and go with this new thing that's like cool and interesting but totally cool. untested, yeah. right? Yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, versus something like uh, we put in here, JavaScript as an example. JavaScript is a as a language something that has morphed drastically since it was since it was created, um, and and the uses for it have drastically changed, um, and and it, it very much as a you know as a design that the language was designed in a way to be very flexible and people have certainly used that flexibility uh, to the fullest degree right to, to morph javascript to do all kinds of things that it really wasn't intended to do necessarily in the beginning 
Um, but because it has been, it is it was built kind of to be flexible, uh, that allows that uh, that wide ranging collection of of uh, uses that is it is now used for today. Um, and that's just a very different uh, mindset, I guess, and paradigm to work yeah, under. and different sort of culture because you enter a world where you can't say this is the established best way of doing things and has been since the 90s because if you say I'm working in the same kind of JavaScript I had in 2015, people will feel like you're behind the times. Right, let alone 20 years ago. Um, so, so that's something else that you want to keep in mind is uh, I guess maybe sort of which kind of personality are you, right? Are you the kind of person who likes uh, well-ordered things and you like best practices and you like to kind of um, have that framework that you can use to uh, to build your your solutions? Or do you like to sort of be the tinkering mechanic who has, here's a bunch of disparate tools on the on the table and, and, and some random parts and you can kind of just cobble together uh, potentially less stable or, or less well-established solutions, but things that are very interesting and novel and, and different. And here again, we're speaking in very broad strokes, and I'm sure there are Java developers and .NET developers who are pushing the boundaries of what their languages can do and coming up with new and interesting things, but that's not the, the standard. And likewise, I know there are JavaScript developers who are kind of going back into the computer science archives and finding best practices for things that... Uh, that simplify large classes of problems and then presenting them to other JavaScript developers and saying, hey, I know this is from the 80s, but it turns out this is an idea that works very well. Right. And, and if we all started doing this, then we wouldn't have to worry about many of the things that have been bedeviling us for years. So you, there, there are both chances for innovation in the long established things and chances to, to learn from kind of the wisdom of the ancients in some of the more fast paced languages. But there's more tolerance for one in one place and, and the other. Right. So you, you really need to decide where your, um, I guess, maybe where you want your creative responsibilities to lie, right? Where you want uh, to to put your creative energy. So if the creative energy that you want to add to this equation is in solving the problem of the day using a set of well-established tools, then that I think will help inform where you should go. And if you want to be more of, I obviously both in both cases you're solving some kind of problem, but it's about what tools you have available to you and and what the norms and, and established practices are. Um, and in one case, I feel like they are more established, and in, in another case, in other cases, I feel like it is much more a you know a, a bin of random Legos, and it's like here this is. You can do anything, right? Like the downside is that you don't have that. But you figure it all out. The cookbook isn't there necessarily as much for you to kind of figure it out, but but you, you can do anything. And then the other case, it's a little more established, but then maybe you don't quite have as much freedom there. So if the problem itself is where you want to put your creative energy um, versus maybe the problem and the process, then, then that is... Uh, maybe a way to decide which which way to go. And it feels to me like those are kind of the extremes, JavaScript being the, the most flexible freewheeling kind of thing and Java.net being the the sort of stodgy banker insurance <laughs> uh, level of things. Don't uh, email I, us. <laughs> I, I stand by the word stodgy. Uh, well, it, I mean, Java people are likely to just send snail mail and we don't have an address for that. That's true. Uh, where on that continuum would you put something like Swift? 
Um, I think I would put it, certainly it's probably more towards the stodgy than it is towards the freewheeling. Okay. If for, if for no other reason, then it is a strictly typed language. So it is just as a language less flexible uh, than JavaScript because of JavaScript's like freewheeling, loosey-goosiness. Mm-hmm. Loosey um, uh, but I would say that it is probably pretty close to the middle, if not even maybe trending more towards the... Uh-huh. I'm just going to use uh-huh. the left towards the more feeling thing. Um, because uh, while being strictly typed, it is uh, it kind of learned from a lot of the best practices of all the of the interesting languages that have come about in the last 30 years. Um, and they try to incorporate aspects of, of many of them into the language. Um, so while it is stodgy in one sense, it's also very smart. So things like type inference, where it can figure out the type that you mean. So when you write the code, I don't have to write this is a string and then this is equal to whatever, I can just say let a number equal six and it figures it out, right? So so Ben's opinion of the Apple product is that it is in fact the best of all possible worlds. <laughs> of course, that's obviously what I'm gonna choose. Right. Um, no, but so it, realistically, um, it is, I think it's probably, you know, uh, right of center, if we're, if we're using left to right, meaning loosey goosey versus stodgy, mm-hmm. it's right of center for, for its stodginess, um, but it is, uh, it, they did try to learn from the lessons that we've all learned in the last 30 years of language design to make it so that it is still relatively straightforward and easy to use on a day-to-day basis. And then as far as flexibility um, of the language itself in where you can use it, that is also increasing. So in addition to iOS and macOS and all that sort of Apple platforms, um, it's becoming pretty popular as a server-side language. So we have frameworks like Vapor that now exist, kind of like as Ruby on Rails an, uh, sort of sibling in the sense that Ruby is the language, Rails is the framework. We have Swift as the language. We have Vapor as the framework to let you build backend server applications, APIs. Um, people are working on ways to replace it, replace JavaScript with Swift to be able to make front-end web applications um, and websites. Uh, so there's all kinds of cool people are putting on Raspberry Pis and getting it to do cool stuff with that. Um, it is it's a scripting language in addition to being a regular sort of compiled language. Uh, so it has a lot of really cool applications, and I think the more that it matures and the more that people play with it the more that the the more the, the wider the use case i guess it'll become so in that sense it is pretty loosey-goosey in that you can use it in a lot of different places um but it's its character i guess is is maybe a little bit more on the stodgy side how would you characterize the degree of uh, ferment maybe in terms of language characteristics both the stuff that gets added stuff that gets taken away tools that grow up that become sort of must-haves for the swift developer are those things that just every release there's a, a lot of new stuff or is it pretty incremental at this point? That was definitely true earlier on. We're now on Swift 5. Um, and so it is it is calmed down quite a bit. We don't have nearly the churn that we used to. For a while there, every time that they would do a new major release, they'd be like, okay, well, your code doesn't compile anymore. You right. <laughs> Unlearn everything that you know so far. We're doing it this way. Pretty much, yeah. Um, they've changed the way they ha- they internally structure strings like three times. Oh, so it is it is uh, it was very much in flux for a while. And and to be fair to Apple, they said that in 2014 when they launched the language, like, listen, this is going to be very we're going to be very busy for the next several years, and it's going to be very much in flux because we're trying to stand up a modern language in in 2015, right? 
uh, and and we're going to do it in flight. Like we're going to we're going to release it. People are going to use it in real production apps, and we're going to try and change it over time while you're flying the plane. So it's going to be messy, and and they they caveated it as such, and and it's and they lived up to their <laughs> to their warning. It was very messy for a while, but it's it's very much stabilized. Um, we have uh, both source code source code um, st- uh, stability and ABI stable st- ABI stability. At this point, I feel like the changes that are going to be made are going to be more additive rather than like super disruptive. Supposedly, async await is something that we're possibly going to get in the next hey. little while. It's it's a very popular um, point of discussion on the Swift forums, so maybe that'll be coming. Um, but anyway, this is not. We're not going to. We don't need to dig into the weeds of the minutia. The important thing is that it the 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 uh, trend is towards stability. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, and and the things that we're going to be getting will be just be sort of new features we can use without necessarily disrupting the foundation of of the language itself, which is very good news because it was it was pretty rough there for for a little while. So I think lastly, kind of as a as a bridge to our next episode, next time we're going to talk about kind of all of the other roles that are not programmer roles but are still very much critical to the success of a product we're going to kind of discuss all those things in the next episode um, but as a way to create a bridge between this one and that one we'd like to end on talking briefly about ui and ux as a way to get into the programming world and to be able to contribute meaningfully to a programming team uh, so ui is for user interface ux stands for user experience uh, and the, the idea there is both the individual screens and the individual things that are on that are on the screen to to uh, convey information and intention to the user, as well as the larger kind of uh, broader scoped experience of the application overall. Someone's in charge of that, or at least someone should be in charge of that. And for a long time, that was sort of a a default small part of a role for just whoever was responsible for uh, for building the whole thing. Right, because when the iPhone was new, it was enough to be able to just put something on the screen, and you didn't have to worry too much about what it was. And when web pages were new, well, that's it was enough to just have a web page come up. And if you remember the early days of either of those platforms, they didn't always look great, and they didn't always function exactly the way that uh, you might expect them to. And so over time, people started to realize this should be its own job. There's enough going on here in terms of uh, of conveying very quickly, because people don't read anything that they see on a screen, uh, how this is supposed to work and how to um, kind of smooth the paths that people are going to want to, to go through in these applications, whatever the application is. And so these these roles took on lives of their own and became big enough to be full-fledged jobs. Yeah, the design is, I think, definitely way more important than people think that it is. Sort of the average person that just sees any any given thing in the world, they they don't really typically think about the ways in which someone spent probably a lot of time thinking about how that thing is supposed to, how it's going to be created and what's going to look like and how it's going to work. Um, as an example, we were talking about in the, kind of the pre-show was uh, the I, a couple, I think it was a couple of years ago at the Oscars. Um, famously, Warren Beatty, an actor, um, announced the wrong name for the wrong movie as a winner of an Oscar, um, and it was in part because the card that he read from was designed poorly. It was it was not conveying the information that it needed to convey to the user, which is the person standing on stage trying to announce this thing in front of millions of people. It was not designed in a way that made that uh, that made that job easy. It was designed for lots of other 
jobs that were really ancillary to the primary focus. And that's something that UI designers and, and UX designers are focused on is creating an experience and an interface that uh, is nice to look at. It conveys information efficiently and uh, makes sure that the, the, in, the intention of the application is conveyed properly uh, in that context so the user can make an informed choice and they can pick sort of the right path, right? They can end up going down the right path and, and making being productive in whatever it is that they're doing, whether that's having fun or getting to-do list tasks checked off or whatever it happens to be, that's their role. And it's critical that that is something that um, that goes well because a bad UX can tank your product, especially on places like the App Store, um, where there's a million apps that do the same thing and the differentiation basically is in how well they do it. Uh, and so it can not only tank your app, but it can tank your whole company. So it's something that's really, really important. Uh, don't think in any way that the UI or UX role is something flighty. Yeah, it, it's. I think it's easy, and I, I think I made the mistake early on of treating UI UX as just the people responsible for picking the prettiest blue color they could possibly find <laughs> to use on the screen. Right. And while color is a part of what they do, the real importance is that people's attention spans are very short when they're using these devices. And so it's of utmost importance that the information can always be conveyed telepathically from the screen that they're looking at into the user's brain so they know exactly where they're supposed to click or swipe to do what they want to do on the app. And understanding the users that you will be uh, serving is also very important. The very first time that I ever, I'm not colorblind, but the very first time that I got a little software tool that let me put a, a layer over top of an iOS app I was working on um, and, and allowed me to see my interface As from the perspective of someone who was colorblind. Like I, I was able, it, it changed the color so that it, to me, it looked as if it, the same way that it would look if someone, if I was colorblind, um, it was shocking to me to see, wow, this is terrible because this person can't tell the difference between one or the other thing because the colors are not different enough um, to to differentiate like a, a a delete versus a versus a save. You know, because one is green and one is red. Red red green color blindness is one of the ways in which you can you can be colorblind. Um, and so, if the contrast there is not high enough, it can be very hard to see. So things like that, right? Things that you definitely, if you if you don't have that. Uh, particular concern yourself um, it's very easy to kind of hand wave away that need uh, but nonetheless um, I think it's somewhere roughly like 10% of all yeah I, I wanted to say seven colorblind it's, it's pretty close okay somewhere around there I mean it's it's millions of people um, who are who are colorblind uh, as just one example of, of a, an accessibility concern that you'd want to make sure you take into account right there needs to have font sizes increased for some people and and even if you if you have none of these kind of uh, physical limitations, I guess we can say, but if you've if you've used an app or a website and you get to a screen and you think I don't know what to do next, well, that's probably not that you're mentally challenged. It's that someone did not do a good job of designing the user interface. Right. I mean, you can go online and look up all these examples of like uh, one famous one I think of is is a it's literally a storefront door that has a it has a it has a pull handle on it. And, and there's a sticker on the door that says push. So it's like, this is terrible design, right? Like, am I pushing or am I pulling? Like, how do I open the door? It shouldn't be a guessing game. It should be obvious. And, and the same thing is true with designing digital interfaces, right? You want to make sure that, that ideally there is only, for any given thing that you want the user to do, there's only one path to success. And it's the most and, obvious and, thing. Yes. And that is the goal of, of a UX or, or a UI designer is to design interfaces that, that accomplish that goal. 
and that's something that if if that challenge is something that really speaks to you then maybe that is the best way to go and the really cool thing is if you're worried that 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 might lead you to a path that provides no opportunity to write code that is increasingly becoming not true. Many UI and UX designers are dabbling in understanding code better because if they can do that, they can make better interfaces. They'll know the limitations and, and possibilities of the platform through writing code. And so they can then make better choices when they design things. And the, the opposite is true. If you really want to be focused on code, but you would like to get into ideas of the psychology of how people interpret screens and text and color and stuff, um, and design interfaces, you can do that too. The, 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 the lines there between sort of a, a programmer and a designer are becoming more blurred. Um, and you can certainly establish a, you can carve out for yourself a, uh, you know, a role that is somewhat of a hybrid. I think iOS is a good example of sure. that because iOS is so design heavy. Even, even you know, the, the most swifty of the developers in the iOS world, they have to care about about design because it's it's so integral to the success of your application. Yeah, and it's something that it's easy to dismiss because good design sort of falls away and you don't notice that it's there because it's not interfering with you. I saw a great little uh, video of, uh, it was a chimpanzee holding a mobile phone and was able to interact with some kind of probably a photo app and you could see scrolling along with one finger moving yeah. and then he found a photo that he wanted to see and so he pressed it and then got to see the expanded view of maybe his own face uh, again facial recognition by primates for the win but the, the point is that it was so intuitive that you didn't have to know really any language at all um, but but so long as you had fingers and eyes, you could operate this device, which is staggering to me. Yeah, interesting, and also kind of uh, illustrates the idea that that chimpanzees are are incredibly similar to humans in many ways. Like we, you know, that's it's also kind of a cool thing. Um, yeah, so I, I think really uh, what it kind of comes down to with all of these ideas and choices are. You have to figure out where you want to spend your mental energy. Um, that is ultimately the the goal of any any of these roles. Is is you're gonna that's what you're gonna be be providing to your employer is your mental energy. Um, and where you choose to spend that, I think, will help you decide uh, what sort of genre or flavor of programming you'd like to get into. And I hope that the discussions that we've just had and the, the choices that we've just provided give you some kind of a framework for making that choice in an informed way rather than just kind of if you're deciding on you know attending a boot camp or or buying a tutorial series or something and you're you're like what should i do and rather than just kind of closing your eyes and pointing at something random hopefully this will help you make a choice that um, you feel like will set you up better for success that's right once again remember that uh, while it's important to choose a starting point because you have to have a starting point that does not mean that you're also choosing a finishing point so pick something give it a try and if you don't like it you can pick something else and hopefully we have a framework to help you switch choices if you want to do that too and what's nice about programming as a field is that even though swift and ruby and go and python and scala all interpret this the code you know the instructions you provide in a different way something like an if statement or a for loop or or a convention that is the concept of programming uh, as, a, as an abstract idea is pretty much universal. So even if you learn programming through the lens of Swift and you later choose to, to kind of go a different direction, you get to pick up 
a lot of the knowledge that you've gained there and bring it with you um, into that new language. So that's that's what's also really nice about this idea of starting somewhere and not necessarily finishing there is that uh, when when you decide to change, you're not starting over. And that's what's really nice. Right. You can take a lot of the knowledge with you. And you can even potentially take it into fields that are not exactly writing a programming language, but are kind of affiliated with it, which is something that we'll be discussing next time. And well, that's the end of this episode. We certainly have a long and growing list of prior episodes that uh, the listeners can access. And Ben, if people would like to do that, tell them where can they go? What can they do? So all of the great stuff about our podcast is available on our website at mbc.fm, where you can listen to all of our past shows and learn how to subscribe. We're basically available everywhere podcasts are sold. So if you have a favorite podcast app or a location you'd like to listen, uh, we're probably there. We're even on Spotify, so check us out there. Um, if you use iTunes or the Apple Podcasts app to listen to our show, a rating and review there would really help us out. And lastly, if you'd like to send feedback or suggestions for new episodes, we're available on Twitter at NBC Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.